0: Better way to do this. Let me show you a way. Hi, folks. This is Jack Spearco with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Wednesday, September 5th, 2012. This is episode 974 of the Survival Podcast. I got a good one for you today. I've talked a lot about a company called Terroir Seeds. And uh, the owner of that company, or co-owner of that company, is a guy named Stephen Scott. And apparently when I talked about his company, a lot of you guys went over there and bought from him. And he contacted me and said, hey, can I get on the show, do an interview, and talk to your community? And uh, what made me definitely say yes was a few things. One, I got great stuff from him. I found seeds there that I couldn't find anywhere else. And I had good results with them. Uh, he also got involved in our forum. And answered questions and learned more about what we do before he asked. Additionally, he's taken some steps due to the lower germination rates that I had with the steering holus pumpkins because of the feedback that came from that. And this was all done without my knowledge. So this is a guy that actually gives a darn about the community. So when he asked me to come on the show, I was like, absolutely, and I knew he'd be a great guest, and he was. And I did that interview yesterday, um, and you'll hear it here in just a moment as soon as I knock out the housekeeping. Housekeeping item one, is always, let's take care of those sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show's here for you uh, seven or five days a week, Monday through Friday. I don't think it's going to be seven days a week anytime soon, guys. I do need a break. But the sponsor of the day number one today is Sawtooth Tactical, located in the Sawtooth Wilderness of Idaho. Veteran run, veteran operated, and all the cool stuff. You need to live that tactical lifestyle from Mag- Paul Magazine's to uh, SOE Tactical Gear, to the Titanium Spork, and everything else in between. Check them out today, sawtoothtactical.com. Next up today, Ready-Made Resources. You can't really ask a company to do much more than make the name of their company, what they do, and then do it and do a damn good job of it. That's what Ready-Made Resources does. All the resources you need, ready-made, ready-to-go, point-click-buy, shipped to you, great service, great pricing, and I mean all the resources. 12-volt products, check. Uh, for your solar and wind stuff. Solar and wind stuff, check. Gardening stuff, check. Tactical stuff, check. Long-term food storage, check, check, and check. You'll find everything you could want for uh, prepping at ReadyMadeResources.com. Great long-term sponsor. Been with us over three years. Check them out today. Remember, Sawtooth Tactical and ReadyMade Resources both offer incentives for the member support brigade, so before you do business with them, log in and make sure you get your incentive, or your discount, or whatever they offer. But Both of them are supporters of the member's brigade as well. Next up, check out TSPCopper.com. TSP Copper is awesome. We have really cool copper coins. Some really great stuff to spread things like the Second Amendment, the Survival Podcast. The work of Ron Paul uh, and Rand's stuff with uh, John Galt. We've got the Globe and Gears ones. We've even got a physical representation of the Bitcoin. You name it, we've got it. Check it out today, tspcopper.com. And remember, MSB members, you also get a great discount at tspcopper. Make sure you check the benefits page before you uh, do that. Next, uh, Hickory, North Carolina, please come see me. I'd love to see you at the, show, uh, the Self-Reliance Expo. I'll tell you what, this is uh, going to be a great one. I've got the meet and greet set up for 8.30 on Saturday, so you guys can get in early on Saturday. I put out a thing on Facebook yesterday. Today I'll put out the actual blog post. I'm still confirming a few guests, but I'm going to go ahead and put it out, and if anybody's not confirmed by the time that I put it out, I'll just list it as confirmed and pending uh, special guests. But the big special guest, folks, is going to be you. You guys getting in to meet me, me get to meet you. But the bigger thing is, what you got to realize is when you get in early for this event, everybody there with you is a listener to the show. And most of them are going to be local to your area. I want you guys to be able to find each other. That's the big reason I do this. I think you guys are all VIPs, very important people, and that's why I work hard to set things like this up with Ron and Scott. They've been great. By the way, Ron and Scott will be attending as well, so you can meet the uh, two guys behind the Self-Reliance Expo as part of this uh, cadre of guests. So really hope to see you guys there. Last but not least, do consider joining the member support brigade. It is the way that we pay the bills around here. It is the primary way that we do that. You'll be supporting the show at a whopping 20 cents an episode, Military Law Enforcement Peace Corps, and first responders, active duty or prior service. If you email me before you join... With service discount on the subject line, tell me who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did. Uh, I will give you a special discount to uh, thank you for your service that applies to all membership terms and to recurring memberships. So if you are going to join and you have that type of service in your background, make sure you get your discount. I do it for a reason. I think you deserve it. Uh, The MSB continues to get better. Dorothy and I have some really cool stuff coming out in September. We'll be ma- making sure that we make you aware of all of the sales and specials uh, that our, our sponsors have going on, and we're going to be working really hard together. I'm kind of bringing her up to speed to take over some more stuff in the company uh, to help us grow the MSB as far as supporting vendors and find companies that really do a great job, uh, that will add value to the existing discounts that are already there. So we do continue to improve the members' brigade. Uh, recently I brought on two discounts for you with Precious Metals and uh, one with um, – Rodak Arms, that does uh, reloaded ammunition and uh, some other really cool stuff. So we do continue to build that out for you guys. Those folks will eventually be carrying body armor and offering you guys a discount on that. So I've been working hard to find you guys a body armor company. Uh, But most of them just don't understand the term discount. They just, it's not, I'm not saying it's not big enough. They want to run specials like this week only. I'm like, that's not how the members brigade works. So if you are a company out there, and uh, you sell body armor as product, part of your product line, and you'd like access to the best, most dedicated uh, survival podcast listeners, get in touch with me. I will get you set up. I just wanted to throw that out there. I also want to throw this out there. I'm making a change to my sponsorship program. So far, every sponsor I've talked to about it is excited about it. One, I can't get any answers from. And they may get fired because of that. So I may have a sponsorship position becoming available in the next month. I'm not sure. We'll see. And if I do, I am, instead of losing this list of people that have emailed me that have no idea who the show is, I'm putting it out on the air. If you are interested in sp- sponsoring the Survival Podcast and going through our approval process, uh, just email me with like to sponsor the show in the subject line and that will be the list I'll be working from this time. I want to bring in sponsors who are listeners and actively engaged in the community. Most of what we have today would fall under that uh, branch and due to that I've seen that it works the best and this one particular sponsor that, you know, basically here's what happened, I'll tell you, they didn't do anything wrong again and, and these guys have done some stuff with it, with it. but my two contacts there left. They they got fired or they went to new jobs or whatever. The the company didn't forward their email to their replacement. I've been trying to get somebody from their marketing department to call me back so that I can tell them about these changes. If I don't hear from them in the next week, they're freaking fired, just like Donald Trump would do to an employee, and uh, I'll make that spot available. I really hope it doesn't happen because they are a good sponsor. No, I'm not going to tell you who they are, but if they poof and go off into the distance, you'll know why. All right, with that, let's go ahead and... uh, Get into the uh, main topic of today 's show again, I have uh, an interview here for you with uh, stephen scott he 's the co owner of terroir seeds, a family owned and operated heirloom seed company that focuses on the cycle of terroir from the soil to the seed to the food you eat, providing heirloom seeds education and information for all phases of that cycle. He's a really cool guy. I enjoyed talking to him for probably 20 minutes just about gardening and things in general uh, before we uh, actually started this interview. And uh, just a smart guy and told me a lot about kind of the back-end way that they go through to make sure they prove out seed lines before they start offering them. Uh, and I am just totally sold on Stephen and his company uh, as both a customer and uh, now a new friend of Mr. Scott. So with that, hey, Stephen, welcome to the Survival Podcast, man.
1: Hey, thanks so much for having me. This is a fantastic opportunity.
0: Well, hey, um, I guess you kind of found me because I featured you a couple times and people like went and bought your seeds. Um, And I know I was looking for some very kind of unique and different things when I found your site, uh, which is at UnderwoodGardens.com. But the site itself, it says terroir seeds across the top. What's that actually mean?
1: Terroir in its most basic translation means soil. Um, of course, with anything French, there's no basic translation. Um, <laughs> in in the larger context, a lot of folks are familiar with the word terroir if they've drank wine. You know, the terroir of the grapes from this particular region or in that sense of place, right? Exactly, exactly. And and a lot of folks don't know that it was originally in the 1830s a French agricultural term that was kind of hijacked by the the champagne industry, and it's coming back to an agricultural term again. Um, It just means the taste of the particular place of where something's grown. Um, For instance, my mother-in-law lives five miles away from me, and she's in a completely different microclimate, uh, different soil, different uh, minerals in the water, different sun. Uh, um, Her temperatures are three to four degrees different. Same carrot planted the same day out of the same packet is going to taste different. And it should, and that's really what we're all about: is working with the soil, building the soil, but then celebrating those absolutely wonderfully unique flavors um, that are different to everybody's garden.
0: Yeah, I think there is something definitely to that. I mean, just like I've been working with heirloom jalapenos for years; Uh, it's one of my big things that I grow every year, lots and lots of, Mm -hmm. in the summer. And I can tell you that now growing them up in the Washita Mountains versus down in the flatlands in Texas, and it's very similar overall, you know, uh, macro climate. But <laughs> I'm definitely getting a different flavor, more fruitiness, and more heat. And it's, it's the same seed strain I've been using for eight years.
1: Okay, sure, exactly. And that it's neat to hear that. And and one of the things uh, with our customers, we talk about seed saving. And people think, well, you know, why to save the seeds is to save the dollars on the packet of the seeds. And that's not it. The the real benefit is just exactly what you described, is those heirlooms will adapt to your particular garden. I've seen tomatoes. I've seen customers have tomatoes that have adapted um, or at least started to adapt in as little as three years. They're the first to sprout. They're the first to have their true leaves First a flower, they produce more fruit. The fruit is definitely tastier or noticeably different. And that's the true benefit of open-pollinated heirloom seeds, but that's really why you should save some seeds.
0: I mean, it makes perfect sense that if you're selecting your best production every year, that you're selecting from the plants that are best adapted to your climate and to your area and to all the things that go with it and that then you're going to end up with the with you know something that's very hardy in your climate in a few seasons and the longer you do it the more that becomes the case right
1: oh exactly and that's how you get some of these heirloom varieties and the, and the one that jumps to mind is um, aunt ruby's german green tomato fantastic tomato and the only way you can tell it's ripe is by the squeeze test because it truly is green. It's a German tomato that was grown in northern Tennessee for 200 years. So that is a northern Tennessee tomato. You know, that's its ideal location. So it's, it's adapted to there.
0: Now we're in September just finally and I it's going to cool off. That's the promise of the season anyway. It's a <laughs> hundred and two degrees here today, but uh it is I can already feel the difference. It it's hot we just had a tropical storm blow through and that always brings the heat behind it, but mm-hmm. you can see the the change is coming. So a lot of people are thinking, Well, gardening's something that maybe I need to be looking at doing in the spring next year But it's not too late to start a garden this year, is it?
1: No, in fact, um, the fall and winter gardening is really starting to pick up and catch on with folks. It's something that's done around the world at a lot larger scale than we do as Americans just because we've been educated by the supermarket. We've been trained by the, the hybrid seed catalogs that you, you plant your garden in the spring, uh, have fun with it during the summer, harvest your, your last tomatoes and your pumpkins in the fall, and then you're done. Um, the rest of the world does it a lot differently and a lot better than we do because, um, for instance, Elliot Coleman. Um, we've been a fan of him for for many many years. He studied the French intensive method on how um, inside the city limits in Paris for over 350 years, on six to seven percent of the land, um, the growers, the small market growers, grew ninety percent of the food for the population of Paris. For three and a half centuries and they did this year-round so the fall and winter gardening really opens up a lot of really tasty varieties Um, you're not going to do your tomatoes you're not going to do your your heat loving plants but tomatoes uh, I'm I'm sorry uh, lettuce your kales your broccolis um, a lot of your cool season crops do just fantastic And a lot of folks aren't familiar with exactly how cold tolerant some of these are. Uh, Some of your spinaches will go into a first snowfall. Um, Some of your carrots actually can overwinter in milder areas. So there's some real opportunities here um, to go into a completely different direction. And folks are beginning to kind of dabble in it, and we've really kind of encouraged that. And we've gotten some really positive response from folks that are, that are really enjoying what they're getting on the backside of the calendar.
0: You know, and I'll tell you something else. Number one, it's a hell of a lot more pleasant to be out there working. <laughs> number one. It's just, you know, I, 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 I'm begging for, you know, get, get toward the end of September when we really get a break from this. Two, a lot of things, like ex- even the stuff that you've planted in the summer, like explodes in the fall because it gets a break from the heat. Right. And three, the freaking pests go away. Right. At least to a degree, right? They're not out there like, because like, what I've learned this year with my winter squash is I plant winter squash pretty early because we have this long, huge, hot summer. And the squash loves the heat, but the squash bugs just come out like, gangbusters. Mm-hmm. Well, I threw a few different pumpkins and things like that in toward the middle and beginning, I would say, of August. And that stuff now is doing great. The squash bugs are done. They've, they've had their life cycle. And they're you know I've got vi- pumpkin vines now that are 14 feet long and crawling across my property. And they're not being harassed the way that the stuff I kind of limped through the spring and summer did.
1: That's that's an excellent point, and uh, that's another facet of the fall and winter gardening. And not necessarily just fall and winter, but time-shifting your planting a little bit. Um, we have a different squash bug than you do um, further east, um, and I think ours is a little less detrimental. They're still pretty nasty. Um but we haven't done squash in the garden for three years now because um, they will overwinter in the wood chips that we use as a walkway. And hmm. so we planted intentionally a month to a month and a half later um, a new-to-us a new heirloom variety, uh, the Zapalo de Tronco. And it's a, it's a winter and a summer squash. It's, it's kind of cool. And we're just now seeing a little bit of, of pressure on it. Whereas several of the gardeners in the areas, their squash have already been wiped out. Sure. So, you know, and, and I'm seeing the same thing with corn, with some of the other some of the other crops. Of so shifting just a little bit, you avoid a lot of the the pests. So that's a huge uh, that's a huge benefit as well. Yeah, I've
0: seen that with corn this year. I did Indian blue corn this year, and I did the typical thing you try to do to avoid the earworms: is get in as early as possible so you can get the harvest before they came out. And they still got me to a, a degree. Mm-hmm. And I did an Indian red later in the year, and it there ain't a, there ain't an earworm in it. Exactly,
1: and that's you know, and part of it is, and and hopefully you're doing a garden journal, uh, documenting some somehow your experiences. Absolutely. Um, that's another key component of being successful. Is trust me, three years, and you you know you've obviously garden long enough that, that you you understand this. But three to five years from now, you're not going to remember what you did for those earworms or for the grasshoppers or for whatever. Uh, you're just not going to remember. Whereas you know you go back and look. Oh, this is what we did. Oh, it didn't work. But this you know we tried this the next year and it was successful.
0: I do have a good one for you on the squash bugs. I haven't gotten to try it yet, but I had a guy on from Oleo Acres Farm. He's in Tennessee, mm-hmm. and he's been fighting squash bugs since he started. Basically, he runs a, a small farm since 1972. And he said this year he found that if you plant a great big, huge patch of catnip somewhere, and right when the catnip starts to flower, cut a whole bunch of it and throw it all over your squash, they just hate it and go away.
1: That and is interesting.
0: I, I hope it works. I told him when he said it on the air, I'm like, the audience probably, like, there's probably a, a thousand people in the audience right now that want to hug your neck, if that's <laughs> true. Um, but yeah, he's, he's been uh, organic farming since 72, and he said it's the first thing he's found that really works.
1: Wow. I will have to try that because that would be huge. There's... It'll make the cats happy, too, right? Well, exactly. <laughs> uh, but the, the approach that I've seen is kind of nuclear warfare. Mm -hmm. It's, um, you know, it's all biological, it's all, you know, it's not a petrochemical approach, but it's such a, it's a four-pronged attack, you use um, capsaicin pepper, you use um, neem oil, uh, garlic, uh, and I can't remember what else, I mean, it's, biologically speaking, some pretty nasty stuff, and my customers have used it with some success, you know, some folks it works for, and other folks it it just doesn't, so... Mm -hmm. If there's something as simple as catnip, that's fantastic.
0: He said they just hate it for some reason, and, I mean, that that would be just too good to be true, but I'm going to try it because if you can't grow catnip, you ain't growing anything else anyway.
1: Well, exactly. (laughs) And and, and if it's that simple, okay, cool.
0: Yeah, yeah. And he said right when it flowers is right when they – when, when they tend to like start to really show up is right when the cat not flowers, so which is kind of neat because I heard another one this year. I don't know if you've heard this one, but it seems like my audience has tried this, that if you have, you know, blackberry, wild blackberry in your area, and most people do, that right when the blackberries start to flower, put your tomatoes in the ground and, and you won't lose them to the frost. And that seemed to, that's another one of those things we'll about the to journal for a while to see if it, it holds true. But right. some of these that's older right. folks that have been doing this for a while, they've, they've got it skinned.
1: Oh, exactly. And what I like to do is try to marry um, conventional proven techniques. Um, and some of the, of course, back to the terroir part, we do a lot of soil building education. And, and a lot of what we found is there's some really ancient proven techniques that nobody knows about today. But you take that and just like some of the, the techniques you were just talking about, um with the flowering of certain trees or bushes or that sort of thing as your indication for that year of when to plant, and then you combine that and backstop it with technology of, um, there's a resource on Dave's Garden um, website of you plug in your zip code and it'll give you your first and last frost dates. Um, Based on your zip code, the three closest weather stations And it breaks it out by percentage and by uh, temperature, 32, 30, and 28 degrees, so that you can really do some planning and not just a guesstimate. So combining those kind of techniques, that's what really helps you be successful.
0: Yeah, and I think that a lot of things can be extended, too, with just a little bit of protection. Like I did a video about two years ago. I just took a couple old fish tanks and threw them over top of some lettuce in January in Texas. We get freezing temperatures, definitely. Mm-hmm. And all of the lettuce in the bed survived. None of it got killed by frost. And, I mean, we got some pretty cold days. But the stuff that was protected grew three to four times faster and larger and healthier than the stuff that wasn't. So I think that... Gardeners adding a little bit of protection can even extend that fall winter season uh, quite a bit further
1: yes i i 've got a customer in Southwest Michigan that was growing the Bloomsdale spinach, um, which is a, a fairly cold tolerant variety and she had it under some some uh, cold um, hoop house type cold frames, just a bent pvc with with uh, plastic uh, stretched over it and Christmas Day she harvested um, a, a big batch of spinach. That evening, it snowed like three feet. And she wasn't able to get back to that bed for almost a month. And when she finally got it all uncovered, the spinach was doing great. And she, you know, she had like uh, four bushels of spinach underneath there. So yeah, you know, it, it's surprising how simple some of the protection can be, um, and how effective it can be. Now,
0: what are some of the stuff that you guys sell that people can still get in the ground this year, you know, starting from a seed, not a plant, and still get some production out of?
1: Most of your lettuces are very cold-tolerant. Um, it it, it kind of depends on when you have your frost dates and how cold your winter is. But your, your classic ones are your kale and Swiss chard. Um, I've seen the, the red Russian... Um, Kale go completely through a winter. Um, we're in Chino Valley, Arizona, so we're midway between Phoenix and Flagstaff, about five thousand feet. So okay. we'll normally get down to about twenty twenty fifteen degrees uh, as a as a as a low for the winter. And the Swiss chard and kale blows through that with you know they don't even they don't even sweat that. Um, a lot of your lettuces, like you say, even if you just simply do. Um, One of the easiest things is the lightest uh, painter's drop cloth you can get. It's a plastic. It's like a one or a two mil. Um, Hugely inexpensive at Lowe's. And you just string it out along the bed, anchor it with a couple of rocks, and at night you don't have to use any structure at all. Just drape it over the lettuce or whatever you're wanting to protect. It doesn't have to be complicated, and that one or two degrees uh, can make a huge difference. Um, your cabbages work really well because they're very cold tolerant, um, short, short season. Your baby carrots are fantastic as succession crops. You, you plant another crop every three weeks, two to three weeks, depending on how much you're eating. Um, Swiss chards, of course, uh, your, your spinaches we talked about, radishes, your mustards, almost any of your greens, um, Brussels sprouts and some of your, um, some of, those, the, some of those brassicas, depending on where you're at, you still have time. Beets, um, 35 days for baby tops, 55 days for the, the roots. A lot of folks have plenty of time for that, and those are also um, pretty cold tolerant.
0: Yeah, they'll definitely rock on through your first couple of frosts. I mean, they, beets, they don't have a problem with that at all. And, like, for me, that's the only time of year I can grow them. If I put a, a beet seed in the ground in spring, by the time it's ready to start you know, putting on some root size to it, it's almost immediately going to bolt because we're getting 100-degree days. And if I wait any later than really early spring, it won't even germinate because it's too hot. But, right,
1: and exactly. It does need a cooler soil. Um, so, yeah, it, you know, it, it just makes sense. And if you like beets, I like to pick them when they're about the size of a golf ball and they're as sweet as a carrot. People are amazed to – it doesn't have that – some people consider it to be an earthier or dirt flavor in the big beets. Mm.
0: Yeah, I've never really picked them real small. I'm going to have to try that. I've discovered lacto-fermentation this year. Uh, <laughs> so I'm going to be lacto-fermenting some beets uh, this fall, I think.
1: And, uh, you know, you're, uh, one, of the, one of the classic, uh, not American culture, but Korean culture, is a fall kimchi. Um, mm-hmm. Sandor Katz has a really good recipe uh, in his book on uh, kimchi. Mm-hmm. What I learned was the the flavors, and this comes back to terroir again, is some of the flavors really depend on the individual bacteria of a person's hand. Um, this mm-hmm. lady that I knew, all of her kimchis had a sweet undertone to it, mm-hmm. no matter how spicy. But her sister had a sour uh, flavor to it, and it was... They could make, the, and they, they did side by side, you know, several times to test. Um, so you need to get your hands in there and, you know, you give it your own personal terroir.
0: Talk about a sense of place, man. That's uh,
1: that's pretty cool. I've never heard that one before. Well, the more you learn about some of our cultural food histories and pathways, it's just amazing. It's amazing at the diversity and the flavors that we don't know now and that we're completely ignorant of because we've been educated by the supermarket for 50 or 60 years.
0: Yeah. It's amazing to me. Like when I go occasionally to an actual supermarket to buy produce, when I just need certain things and you buy some stuff that and if I'm there, I'm not buying tomatoes and peppers. <laughs> so, so I'm always buying stuff like maybe ginger root or, or something like that. And it, it never fails that if I don't get one of those self checkout things, I have to tell you know the the twenty something girl at the at the cash register. What it is? I'm like, right. you work here. You would think, but they don't even know what half of the food is. And it's native. I'm like, you must not sell a lot of it. You know, ginger root. That that is almost never the case, unless you got somebody that's been there ten years that they know what the heck it is.
1: Well, and and if you get parsley and cilantro together. Oh, they're never. No. You know, that, that's always fun. You, you touch it, smell <laughs> your
0: fingers, and you know. I mean, even if you didn't, you know, it means immediately that you that you know the difference. But but not the, well, there's another good thing we can grow in the in the winter is parsley, and I grow the heck out of that in the winter.
1: There's um, there's a um, variety. It's called Parcel, that we that we use, and I'm actually growing it right now. It's done well in the heat. Flavor's kind of dropped off a little bit, so I'm really interesting to see what it's doing this fall. It's a leaf celery. Uh, you don't grow it for the stalks. Um, the leaves are as big as parsley or bigger. Okay. And it's got, if you like, um, it's called parcel because it's got... Uh, flavor of parsley and celery. It's it's um, more close to the Chinese uh, celery because they use the tops a lot in cooking. Mm. So cool. it it, uh, it should be pretty good. Surprisingly, uh, Minnesota midget uh, melon. It's a um, very early maturing. It was developed for the northern areas. Um, I've got a grower um, outside of Boca Raton who does three crops a year. 'Cause it's a sixty to seventy five day variety. Oh so it's wow. A, it's a really short season variety. Now, northern growers at this point are are too late, but um Phoenix, um, you might even be able to do it. But Georgia, Florida, you know, some of the southern states are gonna have plenty of time for this.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's 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 I see I love when people bring up stuff like that when you have it on a show that like I don't know about, I've never heard of before. I've never heard of this minute. So do you guys sell seeds for
1: that? Yes. Yeah, Um, and that was actually, we brought this in because we've had customer requests for it. Uh, It was developed by the University of Minnesota in 1948, Um, and it's just been fantastic. And when I talk to people in the southern states about it, you know, they think, oh, no, that's a northern. It's like, no, no, the thing you need to get is it's a short-season melon.
0: Yeah, I think that's a huge thing that people don't understand, that it's not about where, it's what's the length of the season, and then fit it into your season, because... Just about anywhere in the United States, you have a cool season and, a, and a, a, a moderate season and a warm season to work with.
1: Well, here here's an example, and this is completely out of the U.S. Um, we recently did a big order to Kuwait, um, and I was in the Persian Gulf. I was in Kuwait in August, you know, and I'm thinking some of these things are cool season crops, and and I was talking with the gentleman, and I said, you understand. These aren't going to do well in 120 degrees. He says, no, no, we're going to plant these in the short season and the cool season, which, of course, is now for them. It's backwards for us. Sure. And, and uh, it just really kind of brought back to me that exactly what you just said is not just here in the U.S., but pretty much in the world, there's obviously some hot seasons, but almost everywhere has some cool seasons, too. Now on your, on the stuff that you have,
0: one of the things I bought for me this year, and it, we're kind of going off script here because it's not really a good thing to put in for the fall right now, <laughs> but but was mouse melon, and, and and to tell you the truth, next year I'm going to plant about a thousand of those things. Those things are freaking amazing.
1: I some people really like them, and some people can't get around the seeds because they are right. full of seeds. I I love to pickle them. Yeah. Um. To me, that's you know like a um. Uh, a sweet sour or a hot sour pickle, um, they're perfect for that. Fresh, I don't care for them that much. Um, they are hugely prolific, and they do have a really nice crunch. I'm one of those that's like, ooh, there's a lot of seeds here.
0: Yeah, to me, if you like cucumbers, they're they're just great, and uh, they're kind of like a cucumber crouton in your salad. Yes, you know? yes. You just throw a handful of those things in there, and honestly, with me, they haven't made it much further than the back deck. Um, I had most of my stuff planted in my beds when I ordered the seeds from you. So I planted a couple of them in some five-gallon buckets on the side of the deck and trained the vines up the side of the deck. So every time I take the dogs out, I'm out there looking for however many mouse melons are now big enough to yank off the vine. And uh, they're just awesome. And it's it's cool, again, to find these things that you, either due to culture or just circumstance we've either lost touch with or never knew about.
1: Right. Right. Now, you mentioned them in salads, and I had forgot about that. That is one place I absolutely love them um, because they are such a – it's like you've instantly got a pickle, you know, kind of a crunchy little pickle in your salad.
0: Yeah, and then the other thing I bought from you guys this year, and you probably got a bunch of orders from it, and this again, too late probably for this year for just about anybody, but the, uh, the Styrian Hullless Pumpkins. Yes, and, uh, I did not have real good germination rates, but the ones that did germinate grew like crazy. I got about six really nice pumpkins out of them already this year, and uh, then the squash bugs kind of took over from there. But I think next year I'll try to do a little staggering and get some later in the season.
1: Well, and we learned quite a bit about the Syrian this year, and, and part of it was due to, you know, you really helped kind of push that. Um, any of the hull seeds their lifespan is very very short. The the pumpkin is only about a year on the germination, and germination can be erratic because they're going to try to mold um, if it's too too moist. So, um, we talked to our grower who's who's doing these, and and we've kind of refined the, the the process a little bit. Um, but that's the thing that we've learned because we we promote seed saving, and there's your alliums, your onions, your leeks, that sort of thing. They're germination rate really drops off after a year. Most everything else can be saved for long term, but the styrian is one of those that goes into the Yeah, you gotta use it in a year. Got you. Got so, you. So and you know, when they produce well, I you know, some some customers have, like you have had, yeah, it's okay on the germination, nothing great, but others have geez, like ninety seven percent germination rate. So it's kind of across the board.
0: Well you know, I'll tell you probably because of the way that I try to do things without making it real hard on myself, I probably had them too wet because I started them in, in pots so I could work them into places as I freed up space. Oh, gotcha. And, and I probably was just over-soaking them because for most things that way, you, you know, when it's 100 degrees out, you're good for a few hours. right. <laughs>
1: Right, yeah, exactly. And and that's one of the things that we've seen just as, you know, kind of common mistakes is you need really good moist environment to start the seed, but then you need to back off on the watering uh once it comes up. Okay. So, yeah, give that a shot and see. Um and um I you know, I I've got a customer in Illinois that did 10 acres. She's trying to do the oil because in in Austria the pumpkin seeds used mostly for oil, um, correct? And so she's trying to do that. So it'll be interesting to see um, how that experiment goes.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I will tell you what, they do taste freaking awesome. The seeds are just—I mean, the first thing I did, I probably wasted—I wasted one of the seeds out because I want to know. Well, I'm going to this. What's it going to taste like? So I ate one. <laughs> and right out of the right out of seed pack, and it was great. And, and uh, you know, I got I got some really nice ones. And the thing was, I went on the air and said. They're the only winter squash I have out right now that the squash bugs are leaving alone. And they hadn't touched them, and they were, I had several pumpkins on each one. I went home that day, and the leaves started to yellow that day. And I'm like, oh, you
1: gotta be kidding. It's like they listen to me. <laughs> you, but, got but more, you got more subscribers than you thought.
0: Yeah, I got squash bugs subscribed. They're like, oh, we'll fix you, you know. <laughs> but I've also noticed this year with my, a lot of my winter squash that when it makes a run for the, for the, the, the wood lines, Once the vine gets into, like, the trees in the forest and starts climbing through there, they don't seem to go in there after it as much. So um, there's a lot of things I want to kind of experiment with next year. But let's take on the fall gardening side right now because that's what we're heading into, (laughs) right? So, like, if somebody right now is going, well, yeah, I could, you know, start it. It I don't even have the garden started yet. Uh, You know, could they still get something off the ground this year? And I mean, what would you advise them to do?
1: There's so many different circumstances. It kind of depends on you know if they've got an established garden with some good soil. Um, if not, do container gardening. Um, beginning gardeners, especially if they're in a challenging environment, spend a year or two to build your garden soil, and in the meantime, learn to grow in containers. Um, you, you know, there's no limit to the amount of containers you can do. I've I've got a couple customers that have 50 different containers on their deck because the deer pressure is so bad. They can't garden, um, but the deer stay off the deck. Um, so anything from your one-gallon pots up to five-gallon pots, um, you, can, you can grow literally anything in, in the fall and winter um, sections that will do very, very well for you. It just kind of depends on the first thing you want to do is what do you like to eat. People kind of get hung up on that. Well, what should I grow? Well, what do you like to eat? And They've never, they've never stopped and thought about that. Um, if you don't like spinach... Don't grow spinach. You know, grow something that you like. Um, you know, but well, my mom always said, well, you know what? <laughs> if you're not living with your mom, <laughs> grow what you like to eat. Um, there's the neat thing with heirlooms is there's so much selection. You know, we have about 70 varieties of, of tomatoes. We have about 60 varieties of lettuce. Um, and that sometimes will put people off. If you're not real sure, get one of the mixes, um, and, and not just from me, but from anybody. You know, uh, Most of your seed companies are going to have a mix, and the good seed companies, that's not just last year's leftovers that you throw together. It's a really good introduction to leaf and head and some spicy mix and some sweet stuff, and then you'll see what you like. Ooh, I don't really like the spicy. Okay, then you go for the sweet. Um, so it really kind of depends on what you like, what you're interested in, If you're just getting started, start simple. Um, One container is not too small. Uh, Get some success. See what it tastes like. Get excited. um, Go with five containers next year.
0: You know, and I think what I'll add to that is with the greens, there's a lot of greens out there that if I pull a leaf off of the plant and hand it to you and you eat it, you're like, meh. You pull it off another plant. Well, that's okay. It's a little bitter. That one's a little spicy. But you take five of them. Put them together in a bowl in a salad and let the flavors complement each other, and all of a sudden it's an amazing salad. And whatever that off-putting part was for you doesn't seem to be there anymore. And I think that's a really good reason for growing the mixes.
1: Well, and you make a really good point, and that's something that I that I often mix miss just because talking with people and they're they're looking for individual varieties. Um, but I think that's really uh, important, not just with the lettuces, but with everything else. Is look at um flavor combinations and and that's you know we haven't gotten there really as a culture yet
0: yeah we're getting there i think but i think i think this resurgence in gardening is kind of taking us there as soon as people get off bell peppers you know whopper tomatoes and 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 straight eight cucumbers and that's what i'm going to grow as soon as people start to venture out you rediscover all of these things that we intrinsically know
1: exactly exactly you know, and it's funny things like cress and um, the endive and the chicories and, and that sort of thing that um, are unusual for the American palate. Um, but like you said, when you put that into other greens, oh, my gosh, you know, your, your mustards. Um, ooh, that's really kind of hot. But, you know, you put that in some sweet or some radicchio, that kind of thing, and all of a sudden you've got five or six different flavors coming at you, and it's pretty amazing.
0: Yeah, I'll I tell you one of the, I think the most underrated plants for the fall garden uh, that people just, I don't think they grow it as much as they used to because it's perceived as being so inexpensive is broccoli. And I've had broccoli with ice on it, and it doesn't care. It just keeps, you know, rocking on. Now, I know that in the really northern, high northern climates, it's going to re- reach its limit. But I haven't seen anything kill it in Texas or Arkansas.
1: Well, and you bring up a really good point because... Uh, most Americans are used to the head broccoli um whereas um a lot of the italians there 's the the classic spigarello broccoli um it 's a sixty five day variety that loves the cool and you don 't get heads you get leaves um that's it 's a kind of a sweet mild broccoli flavor um salads stir fries um there 's a couple of um uh, rural rustic Italian pasta sauce dishes that uses this. It's just amazing. Oh. Um, yeah, I'm looking
0: at it on your site right now. It's kinda like uh like a like a broccoli kale or
1: something. That's, exactly. Exactly. Wow. Now, now the, and, and right below it the the Rob rapini. Um this is a really short season. It's a forty five day variety. You have little shoots and the leaves. The thing that we've noticed is it turns bitter very, very quickly for us during the heat. But this is a wonderful uh, fall plant because mm-hmm. as it gets cool, um, the bitterness subsides. And I wouldn't say that it's sweet, but you definitely get a more complex flavor.
0: Interesting. And then for me, just growing regular head broccoli, I think what a lot of people miss out on is you cut that head, and then shoots come back. And then you cut those, and then shoots come back. And you cut those, and it, like that'll go on as long as the plant can handle the, the environment I had a friend of mine say that to me one time. He's like, but, you know, you can buy a head of broccoli for a dollar, you know. And I'm like, yeah, but see, I have 20 heads of broccoli there. And then once a week for, you know, six, seven, eight weeks, I'll get the equivalent of three or four more heads just
1: cutting the side shoots. And the flavor. And people, the flavor. You know, it's not like store bought broccoli, you know? People think, you know, and, and a classic example is broccoli or eggplant, you know, of, of, ooh, I don't, it's bitter. Well, that's because, you know, and even here in Arizona, where broccoli is grown in Southern California, you know, it's still seven to ten days before it hits the store shelves. Okay, so you take your broccoli and put it in the refrigerator for a week and then go eat it. Your flavor's not going to be there. Sure. But fresh cut, yeah, beans are grilled, is
0: just, it's, 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 it's a totally different experience.
1: Yeah, yeah. The, the um, leaf broccoli for me doesn't make it out of the garden. You know, it's one <laughs> I'm going to have to order like, some
0: of that from you. Oh, that's that is that too this, tasty. This year. That sounds really good. Um, I think another thing people could do if they want to kind of get to production faster is throw a little four-foot-by-four-foot four foot four raised bed in and go ahead and put a soil mix in there like a square-foot garden. And I think people are amazed at what comes out of 16 square feet if they really, you know, intensively manage it.
1: Exactly. Um, and you mentioned the the square foot gardening soil, and that's one of the the best commercially available uh, soil mixes that i found because it's got the compost, it's got the soil, it's got the mycorrhizae, it's got the minerals in it. It's a really, you know, he, Mel spent a lot of time getting that right so that, if you want something quick to grow in, there's your answer. Um, you know, and it's amazing because you plant your your baby carrots um, and your beets together. I mean, just literally kind of indiscriminately uh, spread them out, and um, as the as the baby carrots come up, they make room for the beets.
0: Yeah, absolutely, so, absolutely. And I, I call it my gateway drug. It's just square foot gardening. here's, here's a book. <laughs> go put one garden in and and one year later, the guy's trying to cu- cut bushes out and look at any place you know i have I have some good friends that they put in one little four four foot garden and 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 they don't have much space to work with really and they're you know they're, they're ready to go put a garden on the roof at this point because they've got so much out of it, and it, it changes the way you think, I think, when you start to produce your own food.
1: Oh, absolutely. And there's so many things. I mean, there's there's documented health benefits, and this is part of why our philosophy is from the soil to the seed to the food you eat, because it is a cycle. Um, There are so many documented benefits of getting your hands and your feet in the soil. You absorb the minerals, you absorb... Um, and I'm not trying to get Uvy groovy here, but you absorb energy from the earth that's beneficial and healing. It's it's absolutely scientifically proven for 20 years now. Um, not only that, but healthy soil with good seed grows healthy food. You can increase your health through even a 4 square foot garden in the back. It's totally amazing when that happens. And, yes, your mindset changes because then all of a sudden, you know what fresh broccoli or fresh anything should taste like and should look like, makes it hard to buy it at the supermarket.
0: It does make it hard to buy it at the supermarket. And the other thing is that I think we can do a lot with mineral supplements and things like that, but by remineralizing soil and putting it through plants and then into your body, you get much better absorption rates because, frankly, it's how our bodies evolve to absorb those things.
1: Absolutely. And and the thing that You know, and and I'm I'm a geek in this area just because um, we've spent so much time uh, recreating habitat and and improving rangeland and and grazing areas and that sort of thing with ranches here in Arizona, is when you start improving those kind of things, um, the whole cycle improves. You know, whether you're looking at cattle and the milk or the meat that they produce or right at home with your garden. Um, you improve your soil, you remineralize it, you get the healthy biology in there. Um, all of a sudden you see, um, you know, the plants come up earlier, they're they're healthier, they're more pest and disease resistant. Um, the colors are brighter. There's a concept called BRICS that some people are familiar with and some people aren't. Um, BRICS is a simple measure of the, the carbohydrates and the sugar in the plant sap. Um Wine growers use it a lot. In fact, right about this time now, you've got folks out in the field every hour taking bricks on the grapes to see when the perfect bricks is for that wine. Um But you can do the same thing with, with every single piece of produce that you're bringing in. And just as an example, bell peppers. Your store-bought bell peppers have a bricks of about three to four, and that's why they're slightly bitter, and that's why kids won't eat them. You take that same bell pepper and you take it home into some okay garden soil, your bricks is going to be six to eight. And it's noticeably crisper and firmer and juicier and just tastier. If you have good biologically healthy soil with a lot of minerals in there, um, your bricks level is going to go up to 10 to 12. Um, those peppers don't make it into the, out of the garden because they taste like they're actually sweet like candy. Um, and you taste it, and you 'll scarf the whole thing down. you just can 't help it, partly because of the taste, but partly because your body recognizes I need this it 's so amazing
0: well it 's designed to be eaten that's how exactly. that 's how vegetables spread their seeds is to be so tempting that some mammal will eat it and then defecate the seed somewhere else and reproduce
1: itself that's that 's what it 's supposed to do exactly. And, you know, and and if it tastes good, of course, it's going, you know, to, to propagate itself a whole lot more. So makes sense. We just need to tap back into it. And
0: I think the other thing with, like, the small gardens is it's easy to do things like mineral amendments with with, you know, lava sand, green sand, rock dust, because you're not trying to remineralize, you know, 50 acres, which I'm all for people doing it, but I think you need animals to get that done. But for the small gardener, you can do four or five beds with a few sacks of stuff right. and then start that process going as you take the wasted material and compost and put it back in. And I think that's the the missing link for so many gardeners is they get all this great organic matter and then they just, you know, they throw it away. And I <laughs> if you don't want to compost, just throw it on the top of the bed. Right. It'll take care of itself.
1: Right. Mulch it, you know? Yep. Yep. Oh, absolutely. And it just you're absolutely right because there's techniques we can do as gardeners and in fact on the forums this morning gentlemen out of out of midland um having difficulty with his soil and one of the first things that i've seen just from research and from working with different soils is charcoal is charcoal to improve soil um and there's forests worth of paper uh research done just amazing amount of research on the benefits of, of something as simple as charcoal um and You're absolutely right. You can't apply, it's very difficult to apply several truckloads of charcoal to a 50-acre field. But in our home garden, 40-pound bag is going to make a big difference.
0: Yeah, really. And I mean, it does so many, like charcoal does so many things. Because one, if you've ever been stupid like I have and left your bag of charcoal sitting on the deck and it rains, you know that it becomes very, very absorbent and sucks up a lot of water. Mm -hmm. Well, if it sucks up water, it's going to pull in and hold nutrients. And then if you've ever looked at it under a microscope, it's got this just miraculous structure of all these edges and networks and and conduits that become places that that all of these micro and macronutrients attach and adhere themselves to, and instead of being washed from the soil, they get held there. So I think people initially, when they looked at like biochar, would say, well, it doesn't really do much by itself, but it's what it does when it interacts with everything else, and if you've ever seen a, a place where, where the forest burned down, if it's left alone, it grows back amazingly fast. Mm-hmm.
1: And it's extremely lush. Right, right. The amazing thing with charcoal, and is exactly what you say, is, is it's a catalyst. And, and the, an old-time farmer kind of put it to me this way, and it really kind of put things in perspective. Um, he said, everybody's a carbon farmer. It doesn't hmm. matter who you are, whether you're just you know you're growing an, a window herb cell or you're you know a five thousand acre commercial farm. Everybody is a carbon farmer because without the carbon, nothing grows. And, and of course, you can say that for a bunch of other nutrients as well. But you've got three types of carbon. You've got green, brown, and black carbon. Well, your green carbons are your green manures, your their cover crops. You turn them under; they rot quickly. They you know, boost the fertility for a season. Your browns are your compost, so your manures, uh, the corn stalks that are turned under, that sort of thing, and they're going to give you a couple of years of fertility. But your black carbons is what everybody's looking for, and those are your stable carbons that, that exist in the soil for hundreds or thousands of years. Um, and, and the charcoal, the, the, um, the half life of charcoal in the soil, the beneficial half life, we don't know quite yet, but it's at least a 1,000 years. And we know that because of the terra preta soil in the Amazon that's been studied. Um, it's, some of those areas of terra preta have been untouched for a 1,000 years, and that soil is some of the most productive soil in the world. Um, recently, it's been discovered that mycorrhizae... Um, which are the the microfungi that colonize root hairs to help you know extend into the the soil network and bring nutrients and, and minerals and moisture to the plant? It had previously been thought that the mycorrhizae only colonize the root hairs, but it's now been discovered that mycorrhizae will colonize uh, car- uh, charcoal carbon oh, chunks. Oh wow! And it's exactly what you talk about. It's because of those tubules and those edges, and it becomes a... It's a condo for the mm-hmm. micro the mycorrhizae. It acts as a sponge for your nutrients and your minerals. So carbon in and of itself doesn't do much, but it's a catalyst for so many things. Um, clay soils, it opens it up. It allows drainage for sand. Um, I've seen it in Florida that it, it helps retain the water and uh, minimize the nutrient washout. I mean, it's... You know, if there was a miracle tool, that's the first thing that I reach for with, with soil building. You know, and it makes
0: sense when you say the black carbon, because if you want to get a gardener excited, show them black soil. hmm Right? I mean, and I, I don't think it's just gardeners, because like, I've had people come over that don't even really know anything about gardening. I'll pull the mulch layer back in one of my beds, and it's black. It's coal black. Uh-huh. And and you can tell that right away there's like a human intrinsic knowledge that, <laughs> that means that means this is fertile. Right. You know, and when you look at like the, if you look at what I started with in Arkansas, especially, it's white. It's gone from white to black. And that's, that's enough, you know, I've had the place for seven years, but it's really been a year of intensive management and bringing a lot of material in to get it done. But that black soil is where all of the productivity comes
1: from. Right. And I I was actually going to ask, how long have you worked on your soil? So it's it's interesting to see because I think a lot of folks think, you know, when you start talking about soil fertility and you start talking about building soil, their eyes kind of glaze over like, oh, God, that's a 10-year process or it's, you know, a lifetime process. Well, in nature, it is. Sure. But, you know, that goes back to that. We have so many tools and so many things we can do on our little garden that nobody else can do on any scale.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I get a lot of help because we have a great city composting facility, and and their policy is if you'll back a pickup truck up to the pile and use your own shovel, you can have all you want. Nice. That is just phenomenal, what we've been able to do with that. But a lot of it's just been, you know, we did a lot of culture this year, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but it's basically burying wood and allowing it to rot. Mm -hmm. And we have five acres, and our neighbors have about 50, and there's standing dead and, and snags and stuff laying all over and we put in six beds that we had, a guy with an excavator dig out about four foot deep of rotted, you know, semi-rotted to fresh cut mixed hardwood into the ground. Okay. And we watered in July and August because the c- cucumbers got bitter. But everything survived with no water in May. And in hmm. May, we got a half inch of rain. Okay. And, and here in May, it's hot. It's, it's 90 degree days. And that type of, you know, organic. So to me, I don't care what it is. If it's organic matter and it's not cedar or black walnut or
1: locust, <laughs>
0: throw it, pile it, build it up. And it, because in nature, yeah, it takes 10, 20, 30, 50 years sometimes because the bioaccumulation is so small. Right. But even in nature, you find places like where a tree falls and lands on contour and it forms a contour dam. Mm -hmm. and all of the, 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 you know, it basically forms its own little hulu culture, map, and that's crazy fertile.
1: Yes. Crazy fast, too. No matter where you're at. I mean, the thing that we see out here is we have a lot of juniper and cedars. Mm -hmm. Um, And the the mistaken uh, belief of chaining, you know, to try to open the the landscape up, Um, you know, they take these great big ships' anchor chains and drag them and destroy the trees. Um, And it's interesting to see... Because I've always been told the ground is hungry out here, and you see those trees. Okay, you know it's freshly knocked over, and you come back a year later, and there's like a quarter of that tree left. You know that it's just all been absorbed into the ground right there. And what growth you see if it's a barren landscape is right there. Sure. Well, they say
0: a forest grows on a fallen forest. Right. Right. Yeah, well, that's it, the basics of it.
1: And, and the the Hügel culture, I I uh, kind of been aware of it on the periphery, and, and once I started. Jumping into the forum and, and reading a bit more, I've seen a lot more of it, and and uh, I want to incorporate that because I have a the city here does um, tree shredding, you know, and, and branches and limbs and that kind of thing. So I can get I get ten cubic yards at a shot of of uh, wood chips, mm. and I saw a friend of ours had um, like twenty or thirty cubic yards delivered, and it just sat for five years, and when he started to use it. Um, the bottom three inches were just uh, a mass of earthworms. Yeah. And to put this in perspective, um, they're a goat farm in the middle, literally in the middle of a bunch of like 4,000 acres of pretty much decomposed granite. So where did the worms come from?
0: <laughs> That's an amazing thing. Like Because <laughs> here, here's wild and crazy for you. You put in an aquaponic system. Right, and you wait two years, and you dig down to the bottom of your growth media, and there's all these huge ass earthworms. Where'd they come from? Exactly. They, they, exactly. they you know, they didn't. They didn't come with the clay media that you purchased <laughs> to put in your aquaponics <laughs> container. But if you give them the right environment, they'll show up. And if if you want something that'll work for you twenty four seven three sixty five, it's an earthworm. Oh, exactly. And if you can get a couple hundred million of them, which isn't that hard on an acre. If you get a couple hundred million of anything working for you for free, you're doing all right. Right,
1: right. Oh, absolutely. It's just amazing how – and that's the whole thing that, that is so amazing with human-scale agriculture. And that's one of the things that we're so excited about is everything that we just talked about is possible even if you're working a full-time job.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Because you're not trying to do again 50, 60 acres. Right,
1: right. You know, and and you can have a measurable positive impact on not only your budget because you're not buying the expensive trucked-in produce, but you're having a, a very positive impact on your health um, and you know the, the community. And there's just, just it, it really starts to to expand from that. That's that's the amazing thing is. And I never understood it when I first heard the term. You know, if, if you if you want to save the world, plant a garden. Yeah. You know, and, and I heard it when I was twenty, and I'm like, right, okay, well, you know, twenty five years later, I understand it a little more. Yeah, it's my actually
0: my plan to take over the world. It's <laughs> to put a garden in every backyard. You know, hey, but you know what? This has been an awesome interview, Steve, and I I really appreciate you being here with us today, and. I want to make sure people know how to get to your website. Uh, you guys have a
1: site and a blog and all kinds of stuff, so your your website is? The website's UnderwoodGardens.com. Um, Terroir Seeds is the name that we go by. Um, we started Terroir Seeds uh, in the fall of 2008 and found Underwood Gardens, who had been started in 1993, for sale. Um, so we purchased Underwood Gardens. And because of the web presence and the extended customer base, um, we kept the Underwood Gardens uh, URL and, and name as well. So that's why you'll see both names. Well, that makes sense. Uh, yeah, I can understand. Definitely wanting to keep a presence once you have it. Yeah, it was. Uh, I mean, it was nice to have a, uh, an existing customer base and folks that were pretty excited. Uh, the original owner, Mayo Underwood, moved to Canada. And there was some weird ruling that she couldn't take the business with her. So um, it's, it's been pretty good that we've been able to continue and uh, forward what she's what she got started. Very,
0: very cool. And you guys have a pretty cool newsletter. I see you've got uh, – it seems like it comes out every month. So that's cool because a lot of newsletters don't come out every month. But uh, I'm looking at your previous, and i got August, July, June, May, April, going all the way back to May of 2011. So folks definitely will want to uh, subscribe to that.
1: We do during seed season, January through about May. We do two a month, um, and then the rest of the year is one a month. And we try not to be too commercial. It's a lot of information. Um, we try to we try to help folks.
0: All right. Well, I'll have uh, links to uh, to the site, to the newsletter page, to all that stuff in the show notes. And again, thanks for being with us today, Stephen.
1: Well, thanks so much. I do appreciate it. And with that, folks, this has been Jack
0: Spierko today along with Stephen Scott, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days. You know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do.